everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 78. And now for something completely different. Recorded December 16th, 2012, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. This week, the something different is that we're going to talk about something that isn't Linux. I know some of you are thinking, that's not different at all. You spend lots of time talking about things that aren't Linux. But we actually have a topic, kind of, this week that's not Linux. And that that topic is, Seth, lay it on us. The Haiku Operating System. Haiku. I tried to come up with a hi- with an actual haiku, but I, I cannot write four-line poetry. Sorry. <laughs> We're in Wayne's basement, but this isn't Wayne's basement. Isn't it weird? <laughs> it's odd. And uh, with us, as always this week, you've already heard from the gooey kid, Mr. Seth Anderson. Hiya, Seth. Hello, Mark, and welcome, Element OP, Element OP Land. Sorry. Man, tongue twisted today. And the white knight to his gooey black heartedness <laughs> uh, is the command line godfather, Mr. Chris Neves. Hi, Chris. Hey, hey, how's it going tonight, guys? Good, good, good. Life is grand. Uh, before we go too far, I'm not going to say much, but uh, since we all have uh, at least one leg in the world of education, uh, I thought uh, we should mention that our thoughts and prayers go out to the uh, uh, school in Connecticut, those families who suffered a great tragedy. Um, that I'm sure you could turn on, turn on any other news outlet or podcast or read the the web or just look at Facebook for a little while and see all the news you need to see about it. But I'll simply say that a disturbed person did an evil thing and our hearts go out to those people. And that's all we're going to say about it. Pretty much. And so uh, we'll move right on to the news of the week. Um this is an interesting i love how seth uh mines the internet for the bizarre uh syrian syrian rebels now have a tank operated by way of a playstation controller yeah i came across this uh story earlier in the week and i just thought it was kind of cool um you know whether you're for or against the the rebels or the government the uh, rebels are you know they're trying to overthrow the regime and they realize hey the regime has tanks and we don't so they kind of built their own over like a diesel car frame and they use like rusted out iron and steel for the um for the armor and on the inside they have like four plasma televisions or lcd televisions mounted for the camera angles and it's controlled by a playstation 2 control or playstation 3 controller so uh you know I'm sure any American, you know, 13-year-old boy could go over there and probably do the tank better than them <laughs> because we would be much better with the controllers. But it, it says it has five cameras are mounted on the tank's exterior, and there's a machine gun mounted on a on a turning turret. Inside, it's kind of it kind of looks like a man cave. A couple of flat screen TVs are mounted on opposite walls. The driver sits in the front one, controlling the vehicle with a steering wheel. The gunner sits at the other, aiming the machine gun with a PlayStation controller. See, I think I just, that's interesting because uh, you know even the like the U.S. Abrams tank, the the uh, highest point of tank technology to date, still requires a man looking through a porthole to steer it. Right. But, uh, these guys, they they don't have. There's no place a bullet can get in there. There's no window. Right. It's in, so, yeah, it's I, very ingenious, is what it is. That's that's somebody who put their thinking cap on to figure that out. It's definitely, uh, it's also, I'm sure it's tightwad approved. So, Indeed. you know, uh, the tightwad tech can't help but 
give him a tip of the hat, I'm sure. It looks like something Tony Stark would make in a cave out of a box, a box of scraps. Right. So, yeah, I just wanted to share because, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's mildly technology related, and I thought it would make a good kind of warm-up thing. It's right. kind of it's definitely entertaining, that's for sure. And this next topic is uh, near and dear to my heart. In fact, I uh, sort of already missed out on this. But if you're looking for a tablet for the kids this holiday, uh, we've got uh, nine choices for you, courtesy of UnixMen.com. Yes, uh, I don't want to go through and list the ones here, but they uh, pull out nine different Android tablets. And, of course, nine, that's just like, that's what came out before breakfast yesterday. You know? so <laughs> there's thousands upon thousands of them, I'm sure. But they pick nine, and they give you um, specs and comparison for them. Uh, you know, the size of the screen, how much they weigh, how much memory, it does it have a camera, stuff like that. I put the link in the uh, chat room, and it'll also be when the show's released. You can go to our website over at elementop.com and see, uh, pull up the chart, and then you can just look and see, hey, you know, are my kids old enough for a, a cheap Android tablet? And if so, which one would work best for them? So I didn't want, and it even shows what the pricing was at the time of the article. Uh, and again, I don't want to go through and name them all, but it tells you uh, some good and some bad about them and some stuff that they do on their own that's a pretty neat little article um i have a feeling that i wish i would have had this about oh two weeks ago but that's neither here nor there yeah if you're yeah. if you're looking at it now um or waiting till the time this show comes out you've got five days to get something and um, so you better hope overnight shipping is available. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, I, um, kids, if you're listening, stop. Turn it off. I, they never listen to the show, but just in case. Um, I bought my children, uh, the two oldest one, the HKC 7-inch tablet that uh, you can buy. I, I'm sure you can buy it other places. I got it off of Walmart.com. At the time, it was $99 uh, and available in-store and on the web. Uh, and it came in a, an array of colors. Um, I bought a uh, pink one and a sort of a purplish color because uh, I have girls. Uh, they now are $139 and out of stock. So I'm glad I got them when I did. But uh, they're uh, they're a nice tablet. They uh, they came in uh, very quick, uh, shortly thereafter. I've, I've had them out. I've, I've <coughs> beta tested them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? I, I had to. I created the girls. Uh, they're each uh, each have their own Google account with no credit card attached, so they can't buy anything. Uh, and I and it's based off of my uh, um, Google Apps domain. Sorry if you don't have one of those, you can't get them anymore for free. But I had one of the the free accounts that gave me up to ten accounts, so everybody has one of those. So I have total um, administrative control over it, which is great when you're dealing with a seven year old. Um, Definitely. and the tablet, it's a good tablet. The screen is the only thing that's disappointing about it. Um, it's, it's got a weird sort of, uh, um, I don't know. What's, what's the word where you, you like the stickers that are two different images and you turn it one way and it, it's one image. And, uh, there's a, there's a word for that. Oh, lenticular. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lenticular. It's, it, the screen is almost lenticular. You have to look at it at just the right angle to get the best, um, 
uh, image. If you tilt it off axis, either up and down or left and right, it kind of has a, a weird sort of ghosting thing that goes on. But, you know, for 99 bucks, I, I can't be too picky. But it's a, I got a gig processor. I bought a 16 gig SIM card for 12 bucks or something and loaded that up with some of their favorite movies. So I think they'll very, be very happy with that. My plan is, uh, because it's supposed to get um, 10 to 12 hours of battery life, and since we tend to stay up very late on Christmas Eve, I'm going to have it fully charged up, and I'm going to have them in the box playing one of their favorite movies, so that when they open the box, it'll be playing a movie. So uh, we'll get some uh, some bang for our buck out of that one. So That's uh, cool. I'll let you know how that works out. I'm, 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 I think they're going to enjoy it, and uh, I've set them up with Google Voice accounts so that they will be able to text their friends. Uh, so you can text right there from the from the Google Voice app. Um, and and interesting, if you um, if you need to do that, this is a, a free tip. There's a service called SendHub, SendHub.com, and the purpose of SendHub is to um, give you a phone number for texting. And, and calls, sort of like Google Voice, uh, that uh, you know that is not your own. And their their market is like, say, you're on Craigslist, and you want to put a number for people to text you about something. You don't want to give them your number, so you sign up for a SendHub number, and it forwards the number to your phone. And the reason that was important to me is because in order to set up a Google Voice account, you have to first give it a real phone. Well, all of my real phone numbers are already associated with Google Voice accounts, so I went and si- signed up for SendHub. And sent that to my phone, and then sent Google Voice to the SendHub number, and we're good. And then so then I went to you know set my wife up with a SendHub account, and did the same thing. And SendHub, if you don't use it, I think for thirty days they delete your number, and give it to someone else. That's fine. I don't care about that. I only needed it for that one moment, and so now they will be using Google Voice from this point on. So there's a little trick for you for how to get around needing multiple phone numbers. Yeah, cool. it's a good one. I like it. And uh, all of it is, of course, at no cost and near instantaneous. So uh, my wife was in the other room. I said, you're about to get a text message. Reply with 11478. And that was for SendHub. And she did that and then said, okay, now you're about to get a phone call. When you answer it, type in 67349. And that was for Google+. Plus. And just, she was very trusting. When it was all over, she said, now, what did I just do? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, honey. Yeah. Never mind. Never mind. As the world now ends because of that. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> yeah, that's you were the the downfall of the world. Yeah, that was actually the cause for the uh, December twenty first in the world, which is in two days after this uh, podcast. Um, and I will end this podcast saying we'll see you next week because we will. That's all I have <laughs> to say about that. Well, or we might not see you, but you'll probably see us. So yes. sorry. I- <laughs> we did have a, a little bit of uh, vis- uh, listener feedback that uh, that we that we needed to mention, uh, and begin with uh, a fellow who's been on our show, uh, Mr. Scott Dowdle, uh, replied to our treatment of uh, Brian Lunduke's article. So it's a guy talking about something that we talked about. So it's a little circular there, and Lunduke po- po- posed the question: uh, if Linux and other open source tools were no longer open source, would you still use it? And he was trying to make the point that, you know, it's it's about the software more than it is the open sourceness of the software for the most part. And Dowdle basically said, you're a moron. It's a stupid argument. And um, his email was about 3,000 words long. So I'm not going to read it here. 
but I just wanted to say, uh, Scott, we got it. Message received. And while I don't necessarily agree with everything you said, um, got it. <laughs> it. It was really long. You almost lost us a couple of times. Right. So do either of you guys have any comments about, about that at all? <laughs> um, uh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> You this, know, <laughs> this is them being diplomatic, and they yeah, don't want no, to say, "Dude, that was stupid." No, go ahead. Well, his whole point wasn't about you know open source. His point was like, "Hey, it's open source, but do you really care? Do you ever look at the source code?" And uh, and he ended with, "I'm curious how many of you feel about this. If the source code went away, would you still use it?" Or would you jump ship to a different platform? It's obvious that Scott would jump ship to a different platform, um, and so I, I think um, you know he was very passionate about his opinion, but it seemed to be a little off track from the article in our conversation. Yeah, one of the, the analogies that Scott drew was, uh, "What if um, uh, Jesus yeah. certainly suddenly turned out to be Satan?" Yeah, um, and then he admitted that that was not a good analogy but he thinks that uh, the the that lunduk's argument didn't hold water and okay message received and yeah i thought it was more of a question than an argument so i didn't understand the veracity <laughs> so maybe he'll write back and explain it to us uh we also have a voicemail from a fellow by the name of matt and assuming everything is hooked up i will play that now Hey, good morning, gentlemen of the Everyday Linux Podcast. Uh, my name is Matt, and I'm calling from the Central Valley of California, uh, Northern California. And uh, I am a first-time listener to the podcast. I downloaded your episode on generic PCs and generic uh, and open-source software. Um, I just found you guys on a random Google search for Linux Podcast, and I'm really glad I did. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more episodes. But uh, I just had one comment to make uh, with regards to uh, the topic, and that is um, one of your hosts said open source software on name brand hardware is a good best of both worlds, and I tend to agree. I've run uh, Ubuntu Linux since Karmic, I think, every day, um, and I've had HP laptops. I currently have uh, an i3 Lenovo laptop. It just screams with uh, with the latest version with Quantel, Ubuntu Quantel 12, uh, 12.10. And it's a great machine. I I, uh, I edit and publish a podcast of our church's Sunday sermons, and I do it all uh, in Audacity. I've done it all in Audacity, and uh, we host it in an archive. And, and I'm just a big fan of uh, using the best tools that you can um, to get the job done um, but part of being the best tool is that it has to be cost-effective. And for uh, non-for-profits, for schools, for your average home user, I just I love Linux. I love open-source software. I'm a total evangelist. So um, anyway, guys, thanks for the podcast, and I look forward to uh, hearing more episodes, and I'm glad I found you guys. Take care. Bye. All right. Thanks, for Matt, for your comments. There are uh, several things you said there that you liked, but my personal favorite was, I found you during a random Google search for Linux podcast. That's good news. <laughs> yeah. Uh, welcome, Matt. Great hearing from you. Um, I'm glad you liked our show. I Hopefully, you'll like some of the others as you go back and maybe catch up or pick through for topics that interest you. 
And so yep. cool. And again, you know, he, t I think he hit the nail on the head for people who aren't, you know, tech technology professionals, although he sounds like he might be, you know, a name brand box would probably be the way to go. But um, if you're kind of, if you're a techno geek, you know, the part of the point of the article is you could, you know, scrap together components cheaper um, and save even more money with that. So I, I told I agree with this point that for most people that would be the way to go because most people have a name brand box even if it's maybe a couple of years old. Um, All right, and uh, another yeah. great thing he said there was we didn't scare him off. He actually wants That's to listen awesome. to more shows. Cool. Yeah, uh, I had a listener recently. I think it was to this show. Uh, send me an email said i just found your show recently and i've gone back to episode one and i'm listening from there and i thought oh my gosh don't go to episode one please yeah, whatever you scary, do don't go to episode one yeah maybe start with four or five you know after we kind of cut our chops and even then you know it, yeah that we're still kind of baby teeth and it's still we're still not on wood blocks trying to figure out what we're doing uh, however you know I mean, if you started episode one that was actually back when we had a topic and we talked yeah. about it as opposed to just rambling for an hour. So maybe that's a better impression than what he's really going to get. Right. He's like, what happened? This, the show changed. <laughs> and, and just for the record, I'm not wearing a pink shirt. It looks like it on my camera, but it's actually orange. But it looks downright salmon pink. But that's all right. I'm secure in my manhood. Real men wear pink. <laughs> yes. So uh, following in the grand tradition of news outlets making front-page stories about of stuff that's not news, this just in, no one cares about Microsoft Surface. Really? You don't say. <laughs> yeah, um, this is, uh, I came across this one on Yahoo's news site. I'm sure uh, they got it from someplace else. But uh, this, um, this online place conducted a poll for uh, Thomson Reuters last week showing that just 4% of people in the United States uh, who were interested in buying a tablet. So this isn't just random people. This is like, are you interested in buying a tablet? Yes. Are you considering buying the Surface? So one in every 25 said yes, uh, as opposed to uh, like, you know, of course, iPad ruled the roost because, you know, bow down and worship Apple. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, but nobody wants to buy How do you Surface. really feel, Seth? Yeah, and one person, uh, they, and of course, you know, there's always anecdotal stories with all of them, but one person brought his Surface back to a Microsoft store and said, with the iPad, it's one step and sugars and lollipops. And I uh, said, <laughs> and with this Surface, it's two or three steps to do the exact same thing. So, but again, you know, you could find somebody who wasn't happy with their iPad because it wasn't like the, the, kindle fire and they weren't happy with their nook because it was you know anyway so but anyway it's just like nobody cares about surface but microsoft is spending you know lots of money on marketing well and microsoft's strategy for the last really two decades has been to release garbage and perfect it in flight um, right and in that if you look at that the surface is actually a way better starting point than they usually release um right you know it's 80% there instead of 20% there. And so I think a couple of revs down the line, uh, Windows is particularly in business when when you can sync that up with your already existing Active Directory and Exchange stuff, it's going to take it's going to replace BlackBerry. That's my um, prediction. Well, and the sad part is if it replaces BlackBerry, they'll have like 
four percent of the market maybe <laughs> well four so, percent of the 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 consumer market in the business market right. blackberry is still huge uh yeah crashing it's like it, it's falling out of the stratosphere yeah it's definitely fast. losing ground fast but you know it, it went from 90 percent adoption to 70 percent adoption it's still huge it's just not yeah. as big as it used to be right. well and what surprises me you know and i know i live in you know bump nowhere but whoa um, little, yeah sorry about that f i didn't mean the f bomb i mean to bleep that i live out in bfe um is what i meant to say but anyway um i'm still seeing people with new blackberries you know like still fresh out of the box blackberries like they're buying them so rim may be dead but it's living on as zombie people or something because I don't know. It's just weird to see. I saw one the other day. What was the last BlackBerry that was released? The Storm Two or something like that. I can't. I don't. I lost track and stopped caring a long time ago. Yeah. Well, whatever the it was. The only reason I noticed is because it it was the one at the touch screen, and it was they were just happy as can be poking along through the BlackBerry interface. It just surprised me that you know with iPhones and and the Android different the different Android phones that someone would still go out and buy a BlackBerry. Yeah, and Seth, you were talking about there are people who don't like the iPad and prefer something else. Uh, I would I wouldn't say I don't like my iPad, but but between the iPad and a, and a comparable Android tablet, I just like the Android OS better. So there's you know there's no accounting for tastes out there, and so right. there are going to be people who like Surface better. They're just not buying them right now. Yeah. Um and. After after the great RMS, Richard M. Stallman throws a fit about Ubuntu. Ubuntu responds, and a not in the way that you might expect. Yeah, um, of course. You know, we covered Stallman's take on uh, Ubuntu's latest whole operating system is spyware. Well, apparently, the Ubuntu community manager, so not really a, a an official canonical evangelist, but he's like in charge of the Ubuntu community. He called Richard's uh, position childish. Uh, and then he came back with a later post and he apologized for calling it childish. And he instead gave rational arguments as to why Stallman's position wasn't good. So, uh, you know, he specifically apologized for calling Stallman childish. Uh, so, so just to, just to be clear, in in Bacon's um, personal blog, he called Stallman a child. In Bacon's official capacity, he apologized for calling Stallman a child. So basically what happened there is he wrote something on his personal blog, some heat came down, or maybe he just rethought it and thought, you know, two people being childish does not make things better. So um, he, he came back and, and he apologized for his characterization, but not for his position right and i mean i i you know i agree with what he did you know you just and you know the bad thing about because people say stuff like this all the time um but you know once you type it it's on the blogosphere and then people pick it up and take it out of context and then you know take that little spark and throw gasoline on it and try to blow it up into something big so I think he did the right thing in saying, you know, I overstepped. I shouldn't have called him a child, but I still don't agree with his position. And this is why I don't think it's a good position. But, you know, I shouldn't call him a child. We should be adults and have a rational conversation about it. So good for him for 
realizing he went too far, whether he did it on his own or not, I don't know. Yeah. And uh, what? Oh, I'm I'm just gonna leave that alone. Uh, next up, um, all of you uh, people out there still nursing 386 hardware are not going to be able to upgrade to the latest Linux kernel. I'm sorry, it's bad news, uh, but their <laughs> Linux kernel 3.8 is going to drop support for 386 chips. Yeah, from a, uh, it's kind of like a historical milestone because the 386 processor is really what Linux was launched on. So it's officially dropping support for it, which in a lot of ways, uh, I'm not a programmer or coder, but apparently it's going to simplify things to get rid of it because it was so old um, that they're going to be able to focus on new and more modern things. But yeah, coming out 3.8 will be the last, um, or 3.7 will be the last Linux kernel that will support the 386 processor. Now, that's not to say it's the last Linux OS because, you know, like Android is based on an older kernel. Uh, some of the Puppy uh, and DSL, they're based on older kernels for supporting older hardware. So that's not to say that there's never going to be another Linux come out for your 386. But, I mean, come on. I, who still has... But, well, one thing that I point out is that 386s were used in embedded systems a lot. So, you know, a lot of the embedded devices out there, um, even though um, 2007 is when the last 386 was produced. So it's only been a little over five years. Um, so, you know, there's probably still a lot of embedded devices. And they mentioned some phones, such as a BlackBerry 950 and Nokia 9000 were... Um, hmm were some of the last things uh, to use that in, as far as phones went. It would be interesting to find out how f- slimmer the kernel is going to be then, if they're since they're dropping the old... It doesn't, the article, that, and I don't remember seeing it, when I saw this article, or the, the write-up on this article somewhere else, and I don't remember seeing anywhere on how much code that's going to trim off. So it's going to be interesting to see how much slimmer and faster the cur- the kernels become after this point. Right. Yeah. So you know, at I some don't... at some point you have to drop things, and uh, right. While the three eighty six is is still in use in some places, most of those embedded devices are now using uh, ARM chips. ARM. Yep. And so right. then they've uh, the Linux community has has sort of thrown its weight behind ARM, and and, and appropriately so. So it's, you know, I'm not sad to see it go. I didn't mourn the loss of the, you know, the the 286 chip when it went away. Uh, of course, Linux never supported the 286 chip officially, but I just mean in general. Uh, there aren't a lot of those hanging around. I, I think I think I may still have one of those in, in the basement over there in the corner, uh, but it, I'm not actually using it every day and, and have no... And think about what, <laughs> what would, would you have had on a 386 chip um maybe a 10 meg hard drive um and you would four have megs have of ram maybe that'd be yeah. pushing i think that would be the top of it yeah well with 386 were you still doing like a meg of ram on a were they up to a meg of ram uh yeah then? i think been- yeah i think i had a 386 and i had four megs of ram uh, wow. in my in my 386 uh, and i remember I, I got a brand new Best Buy card in college, um, and I maxed it out buying one copy of Windows 95 and two two meg SIM chips. Uh, so that's uh, and I paid on that for a long time. 
Uh, so yeah, 386 would have had I don't maybe a, maybe even up to a 40 meg hard drive, uh, but uh, a lot of them didn't even have hard drives back then. Yeah, they were uh, floppy disks to floppy right. disk. So when you think about that, you know we're losing support for you know the machine that didn't even have a hard drive and was still using you know loading DOS in upper memory. It, it yeah. kind of it kind of uh, brings things into perspective a little bit. Right. Yeah, but, you know, and like I say, just from the historical perspective of, you know, you're abandoning, you're cutting ties with your roots, which, you know, I understand you don't want, a, you know, it would be like a car running an original, well, I'm not an automotive guy, so never mind, but uh, it, would be, it would be like a car still having to have a hookup for horses to pull it or something, you know, at some or the point, crank. It, it, yeah, it's got to go, and I understand it has to go, but uh, I'm kind of a little sad that it had to leave i remember also very excitedly buying a math coprocessor for my 386 wow it was a big deal <laughs> uh, i also remember having to delete files to load dune on it doom on it um, <laughs> because the hard drive wasn't big enough to hold all my other shareware games and i wanted to play doom really badly and i did play doom really badly because on a machine like that you could always tell when there was a monster about to jump out at you because the whole game froze and the hard drive went as it was loading all the data. So it yep. kind of took the whole jump shock surprise right out of the game. Right. <laughs> it would almost be funny, Mark, to see you in front of one of the, some more, uh, a newer jump scare type game. Yeah, well, the last game I played in earnest was Halo uh, 2. And it's got some jump scare moments in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it just doesn't interest me. We've talked about that before on the show. I'm not interested yeah. in that kind of movie and that kind of game. Um, right. So uh, just a quick follow-up on the, the McAfee story. Uh, John John McAfee um, was caught and then released and then now is either on his way or has arrived in the U.S. But uh, well, an interesting thing about that story is the, uh, the EXIF data that a lot of people don't know is in their, their pictures, including the reporter for whatever online magazine it was, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, that got them caught. So uh, Seth has dug up a nice little article here about uh, about McAfee, but really it's the data uh, that's stored in the EXIF image uh, data that, that he wanted to talk about. So go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a tinfoil visor kind of guy, and uh, I like my privacy. And, you know, you think about if you have – if you have school-age children, especially, who love to take pictures and tag themselves and upload them to Facebook, you know, unless they've gone through and turned off the location feature of their f- smartphone they used, they just tagged their location. Uh, and that you can download, you could pull that picture off and get the data off of it if you have a program and so what happened was you know somebody had like done a story with him and took a picture of it but they did not scrub that data from their machine and from from their phone before they uploaded it or i'm sorry from the photo before they uploaded it so someone was then able to with the photo take it down and you know it kind of depends on like gps longitude latitude that's kind of depends on what kind of camera you're using, but they're able to get a location of where it was taken. And this particular article, um, the link will be uh, in the show when it comes out. Well, uh, it just kind of goes through and it, it tells you 
what kind of information your camera can get. Um, you know, like this particular, like um, uh, for a, an example, they took a home, they took a photo of a home kind of decked out in Christmas lights, and then they posted all of the information from it uh and they got the latitude and longitude from that and they were then able to plug the latitude and longitude into google maps and then boom they pull up a picture of that house that was taken at some point and so once you know where the house is you know then it's just a matter of hit the direction button and away you go yeah, so back in 2010 15,000 images were scraped from twitpic uh images that had been posted to twitter uh, 10,000 of them had uh, EXIF information. 5,000 included the camera model. 400 noted the location and the time the photo was taken. 102 included, included the photographer's name. And uh, most of them had some sort of, uh, excuse me, most of them with GPS information came from iPhone, iPhones because iPhones store that um, in the EXIF data. Other things you can tell it to, but not necessarily. And uh, Element 913 in the chat room is pointing about a a famous celebrity who uh, cropped a photo of a naked photo of herself and posted it, but the image still had a thumbnail of her nakedness in it. So somebody pulled that out of the EXIF data. So if you are a tinfoil hat guy or not quite that far, like a tinfoil visor like Seth is, the best way to eradicate all that is to pull up your image in an editor of choice. I like GIMP and do a copy paste, like select a region and copy it as a new image then you just get basically a screen capture and it's not all that yeah. other data. So if you, if you want to post things online, that's the best way. Of course, you're not going to do that from your mobile phone. And that's the thing, what people are doing. They're cropping, they're doing everything from the phone and they're not even paying any attention to that data. Yeah. yeah. When I had an iPhone, the first thing I did was I went in and I turned off that, uh, that location feature. And, and that's I a drill remember. down thing. That's not a, yeah. here's the button to turn it off. That's a go here, then click here, then click advance, then go to more settings and then click advanced more super ultra settings. Then click, are you really sure you want to do this settings? And yep. then there's the, I know you didn't mean to, so I'm not going to do it for you <laughs> anyway setting that you have to click through. But finally, after you've charged your phone three times going through the menu, you can get to an option to turn it off. Uh, and moving on to something near and dear to the command line godfather's heart, Steam is plowing right ahead with their Linux beta. Did you get uh, approved, Chris? Uh, I got the notification this morning, actually. So I will be uh, getting my little Steam client downloaded and installed and logged in here probably within a few days. Um, I've been a little busy and I haven't had a chance to do it. But yes, I have been approved. So whoopee, it's time for some fun. <laughs> so now you don't have to use wine. Well, technically you are, right? Isn't the client, the client using some sort of wine in it? Yeah, it's a, it's a wine wrapper program is what it basically boils into which you know it, it's n not quite the same um but they're trying to figure out a way to do it without the the wine wrapper right. um because of of issues with wine in general in some of the games so eventually we'll see it without i'm sure but right now i don't i think it's still just being the wine wrapper so i can't wait and of course, one great way to get away from that and to stop worrying about OSs in general is to build your own console. And the Valve guys are working on that. They've confirmed this week that they're building a Valve console. Yeah, so, you know, we've been talking about the, what is it, Awaya or 
the open source Android one that is supposed to be coming out next year. So here, yeah. Wine or uh, Valve is throwing their weight behind a console, and I could not find a lot of details about it. It is basically a computer, but it's designed to hook up to your, you know, TV and set in your living room as opposed to being a standalone computer. And uh, so, and then they're hoping to be able to compete with the mainstream consoles like the Xboxes, the Playstations, and the Wii's of the world. Uh, so yeah, you know, Valve is making their move to be uh, a major, major player in gaming and not just kind of break out of their little niche market. And it's a good bet that the console they release will be running Linux at its core simply because then they don't have to worry about licensing. And that's why they're keen to get this Linux client. They're, they're letting you dog food their app for them. That's, that's my thinking anyway. That's what it sounds like too. And all the stuff I've been reading, all the different background. And when this does come out, um, guess whose house it's going to be in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I will definitely be much happier sitting in my easy chair playing my Steam games than sitting in this uncomfortable chair on my PC. Uh, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see when it comes out. They don't have any dates yet, but they are demoing their uh, – they have it called the Big Picture Mode. And it is a controller-friendly environment. Right. It's not a mouse environment. It's more for a controller. It looks similar to the Xbox 360 uh, it, well, it's kind of like Xbox 360's interface and the PlayStation 3 interface kind of got smashed together, and now you have the big pictures interface. Right. And, and remember, when the Xbox originally came out, it was basically an Intel Celeron PC in a custom case. So it really was a computer, and what was it, um, XMC? Um, was originally a hack for it to make it into a full-fledged computer, but that later became a Linux distro. Um, so they, it could be something similar. And again, you're just you're taking a computer and you're making the OS. You're making it an embedded device. Is really yep. what we're talking about. Which is uh, which is good and uh, and bad. Uh, you know, yeah, all really well. But that's also. <laughs> Uh, didn't Valve say they were working on some uh, movie streaming content as well? Uh, I think I remember reading that uh, at some time. I, I don't I remember that, but I don't remember movies. But I do know they're working on programs and doing the three uh, D, the like three D rendering type programs. They they offer those in their Steam store right now. Um, I don't remember seeing anything about movies, but I'm sure it wouldn't be that far off the beaten path if they can get the interface to work for their games, adding a movie client would just be a couple of probably a few hundred lines of code, if that even. I may have yeah. made that up, but I was thinking I had read that they, they announced that there was a move in that direction. They were looking to secure some licensing for uh, streaming media content. Uh, so, you know, they're they're trying to to be boxy uh, or the, the new Wii U. You know, everybody wants to now be the box connected to your TV instead of your PC. Um, and I, yeah. I applaud it. I'm all for it. Yeah, me too. I mean, there are a lot of people right now saying that the TV is dead uh, and that everything's going to be mobile, that the iPad and, and things like that are going to take over. Uh, I, I don't agree. That you, still need, you still want that social experience of everybody staring at a screen. And with big screens, I mean, I was at, uh, at the Walmart the other day. There was a 47-inch... TV 
for like four hundred dollars. Um, yeah. just sitting out in the aisle please take one you know back back in the day a 47 inch tv would have been a lo- under lock and key with an armed guard standing nearby and it would have cost twelve thousand dollars this thing was just you know grab one and put it in your cart while you're there uh so the the big screens are getting cheap and ubiquitous and people are going to be looking for more content to put on them yep yeah i went to um i was in sam's last week having lunch at their little uh, restaurant because it was super cheap and they had a 99.0 inch television that i just looked at it and go yeah would it fit on my wall because 90 inches dude that thing was freaking huge i've got a nice spot in my living room where 90 inches <laughs> would go really nicely um, it was like nine thousand dollars so you were right. playing you were paying like a hundred dollars an inch for that so yeah and so it's you know like i said it's getting cheaper now in fact this i, I went uh recently took it buying some small tvs for my kids to put in their room and like the smallest you can find is 26 inches these days yeah um you know i actually saw a uh like it was like a 16 inch tv dvd combo for like 150 dollars oh wow i would have bought that um I'll have to find the website coo something dot com if that was. okay. Thanks. So anything with the number two shouldn't be more no. than seven billion combinations. Kogan, K. Okay. I was saying coo, but K O G A N dot com slash A U. Um, I'll check that out. Um, and yet another uh, European city is moving to open source. The Swiss city of Bern. Uh, Switzerland has mandated, not recommended, mandated the use of all open source and banished, says the headline, banished Microsoft officially. I like how you said the uh, the Swiss city of uh, Bern, Bern, the Swiss city of Bern, Switzerland. So that was kind of funny. And then I butchered this. That's, that's, not, re- so. that's not redundantly repetitive, is it? No. But yeah, no, uh, they voted 36 to 20. To do that, so basically, I don't know, kind of a snub of the finger to Microsoft um, and their whole uh, thing, but they are moving open, and um, so they're kind of changing, you know, so if you're like a Microsoft certified guy making your living in burn, you know, you're going to have to hope the private companies can keep you employed because the government is moving away from that. Um, And in case you're wondering... If uh, Swiss, uh, if Bern is is a podunk city in Switzerland, it's not. It is the fourth most populous city in Switzerland, with a population of one hundred and twenty-five thousand, according to Wikipedia. Yeah, wow. so you know, it, it, it's not like my hometown moving open source. You know, it's a it's a nice size. Nice size little place to go visit, I'm sure. But uh, so, yeah, they want they've kind of developed and then they're actively implementing uh, their open source strategy. And so cool. I just I just thought it was cool. You know, open source is moving forward. And I just I hope and of course, I know we can't, but I hope we can put to bed the whole well, you get what you pay for kind of notion. Right. You know that yeah. well. If it, if it doesn't cost thing, it's because it's no good. Um, so I just I like to mention stories like these to to get it out there. And uh, now we just got to see if they're going to be uh, Unity, GNOME, or KDE. Which camp they're uh, going to fall fall into? 
Right. Or cinnamon or <laughs> mate or whatever. Maybe they'll choose haiku. Yes. Go haiku. <laughs> Uh, but I think it's I think it's obvious that uh, the you know the eight hundred pound gorilla in the office suite is uh, is star office slash Libra office uh, or open office excuse me uh, so that you know that's probably the direction they will go there uh, and the question is what platform will they run it on yeah right uh, and here's another city in Germany that uh, is actually moving away from open source and back to closed source hmm. Yeah, um, the title of the article is Something Rotten in the State of Freiburg. Um, and that's my best East Texas accent pronunciation of their German city name. But they, from what I can tell, clicking through some of the articles referenced in this, is that it almost looked like somebody didn't want to move to open source. So they spent a lot of money and did a lot of studies and used a lot of outdated packages and said it wouldn't work. But they threw a lot of money studying this and in the end they're dumping it they're dumping open office and the version of open office they were using was really old um because they and they never really gave it a shot i don't know i don't know any good way to really talk about this without reading the whole article and it's kind of long and in, and engaged but the thing about it was um it wasn't so much just that it was them but it's there's another city in germany that we've um that we've talked about before who is done. And I accidentally put the, uh, I put the same story in twice rather yes, than the did. other one. So I am sorry. I, I was like, why didn't you have the other one in here? But then I, I'm the one who put the notes in, but there's another city in Germany that we've talked about. Munich. And I, yeah, Munich who about the same time started going and they, you know, recently touted the money that they've saved doing it. But, there was an initial upfront investment, of course, but uh, so it kind of depends. Do you, if you want to give open source a fair shake, it will do the job. But if you set out going, I don't want to try this crap. I just want to stick with Microsoft, but we have to give it a shot. Well, it's going to fail, you know. Um, and I've certainly so, seen that in the education world many times. It all it all depends on what numbers you look at. And uh, what data you feed it and what, what you focus on. You, Munich said, yes, we're going to have to bite the bullet. We're going to have to train people. We're going to have to um, uh, reformulate some of the way we do things. We're going to have to convert our documents. But once that process is done, going forward for the next generation, uh, we will save the taxpayers money. And that's the way they looked at it. And, you know, 10 years later or something like that, uh, the yeah, better part of 10 years, years uh, they've um, – They've proven that they've re already recapped all their initial investment, and going forward, it's you know they're playing with house money at this point. Uh, right. But if you choose to focus only on the upfront implementation, it will fail every time. Right, because you can't, you know, it, well, it kind of depends. If you were going from say Office two thousand or Office two thousand three over to LibreOffice, well, there's really no change in that, but there's less of a change than going from 2003 to 2007. But, you know, some of the ways you do things, especially, you know, a lot of people who do programming in Excel with formulas and stuff, they work a little different. And there is just some retraining every time you have a new version of something that if you don't account for, otherwise you just stay locked into something and that's part of, Hey, we got you using our system, stay here. And so why innovate? Um, whether you like open source or not, you can really credit open source with making Microsoft better because once Microsoft killed off Netscape, what happened to Internet Explorer? 
absolutely nothing. Um, yeah. And so it wasn't until open source got involved and, you know, Firefox came out that then Microsoft said, "Uh Oh, we better start making our browser better. And so, and again, the same thing with office once Corel died. And of course I know Corel is still around, but really nobody uses it because Corel got that position. Corel was the name in word processing or actually word perfect before it was bought by Corel word. Perfect says we're word perfect. We're the best use us. Um, and Microsoft said, Hey, we've got this other product. Uh, it's crap now, but we're working on it and it's not quite as crappy. And Hey, we're pretty good is, and now, Hey, we're better than them. And Corel was like, uh oh, they got better than us. Let's try to catch back up, and they never could. So, you know, whether you like them or not, even in, of course, if you're a Microsoft lover and fanboy, I don't know why you'd be listening to our show. But <laughs> if you if you know someone who is, you can point out that they can thank open source for causing them to stay on the top of their game. And if you're an IT guy like I used to be, and like these two guys still are. This next news story will make you very happy, if you're a Linux-loving IT guy anyway. Samba 4.0 is now fully Active Directory compliant. Yay. Um, oh, yes. Now, why that is a big deal is uh, Samba's been around for a long time, and it's I used it in my Windows network forever, but it was never Active Directory compliant. It would work in an Active Directory environment, but it was using the old NT uh, protocols. Just like if you put XP uh, in your Active Directory environment, it'll still work, but it's going to be a second-class citizen. And that's the way uh, Samba was. And if, if you had a Samba yep. server, it acted like an NT server, not like an Active Directory server. And there were things that you couldn't do. Um, and Microsoft uh, was very uh, resistant to Samba, uh, the Samba project of helping Linux be more interoperable. They uh, they stymied them at every uh, step. They they never actively sued them, but they 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 weren't very um, appreciative in any way. Well, so the tide has turned, and now Microsoft has actually helped the Samba team develop Samba so that it can be fully Active Directory compliant, and that's a big deal. Yes, yeah. I am actually looking forward to the next Fedora release because they are going to be the first ones to have Samba four built in. There's ways to install it. I mean, you know, after the fact, but they're going to have some built into it right away. So it'll be interesting to see what it's like fresh out of the box when they release. So what that means is you can drop now um, a Samba server into your network, and it will function as a fully uh, full citizen, and not just as a as a uh, client, but as a server with group policy and 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 all that good stuff, without ever paying Microsoft a dime. And Microsoft yeah. helped them do it. Yeah, there the guy in the article, the person he brought up a quote that he got from Microsoft in 2006, uh, and he says, "Here's the quote from 2006: With Samba, I'm really familiar with that technology, and I'd say that a lot of what they do under the guise of interoperability is clone ability. I wouldn't say it's a great relationship, but we have a working relationship." They ask things of us, and we say, that's our IP, meaning intellectual property. And they say, you should do it because all software should be free. Well, six years later, Microsoft's quote is, 
Active Directory is a mainstay of enterprise IT environments, and Microsoft is committed to support for interoperability across platforms, said Thomas Finning, Director of Development Windows Server, in a statement. We are pleased that the documentation and interoperability labs that Microsoft has provided have been key in the development of in the development of the Samba 4.0 Active Directory functionality. So, you know, they Microsoft has changed their tune and you know it's just like we talked about they're one of the biggest contributors to open source in terms of like coding or in I think in the Linux kernel they uh you know they were one of the biggest contributors of code to that and here they are they're they actively contributed to Samba which you know active directory is really good if if you're if you're not an IT professional take it from ours you can do a lot of stuff with it it's really good um and to see that they're actually opening up you know, kind of pulling back the veil a little bit and allowing other people to play with it is uh, it's a win-win, I guess, for the IT world. <laughs> that was I an expectant. Got- <laughs> he he, he like- leaned forward, he opened his mouth, he furrowed his brow, and then nothing came out. Yeah, it was one of those moments I had something to say and then it just went out my head. I remembered. Okay, I remember an article similar to the, to what the one you brought up, Seth. But there was a more of a thought of Microsoft, the original guys who developed Active Directory. Um, according to the article I read, that the documentation wasn't all that great, and so the Samba guys try in trying to reverse engineer Active Directory, they actually. F- rewrote some of the the manuals and guides that Microsoft is using today. Um, I wish I could remember where that link was and I could probably go through my history and find it, but it was a really interesting read on the fact that the Samba team redid the manuals for Microsoft in, in a sense because a lot of the, the guys who were originally on the ground level for Active Directory, they left and took all that, you know, there was a brain drain when they took off. So huh. now... Samba was the ones that were rewriting all these, you know, seeing how this code worked and then the whole idea behind reverse engineering. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can find it in my history. Uh, I'm not going to guarantee I'll find it, but I'll look for it and see if I can find that link because it was a very good read on it. Ah, that would be cool. I, I would I would like to. I don't know if that would be something that Element OP faithful would love to read, but I would enjoy reading that. Well, and for the non-tech-minded uh, people out there, there are those who listen to the show. Uh, let me just explain a little bit about what was involved in in creating Samba in the past. So they'd set up a Windows server that they paid for and a Windows client that they paid for, and they would do something like open a network share. And they would have a packet sniffer on the line seeing what traffic went back and forth. So the, the, uh, the client said, hey, I want to open this share, and they would look and see what that, what that language was back and forth. They didn't know how to produce any of that information they just saw the information. So then they went back and wrote their own code that put out the same code. It would be like uh, if you, uh, Chris, uh, and Seth had a, a, a foreign, uh, a secret language between the two of you, and you spoke it openly. And I wouldn't necessarily know what you were saying, but if every time Chris said a certain phrase, Seth handed him a beer, and I wanted a beer, I could memorize that phrase, and Seth would hand me a beer. So that's yep, what right. they were doing. They didn't actually know what they were coding, uh, what they were doing. They just knew if they spoke open sesame, the door would open. So they right. wrote code that spoke open sesame. Well, now Microsoft has sort of said, well, here, let's tell you 
what this does and how you can more efficiently create it. Yeah. So that's my little primer there on, on reverse engineering of code. And it works that way for any reverse engineering. So like wine is a prime example. That too it was reverse engineered. So they were doing this exact same thing with programming sniffers. Right. Uh, and then our last little story here, this is an interesting one uh, for the, uh, the security-minded, and just for the geek, because it's cool. Uh, uh, you may be familiar with Tor, the Onion Router, which is actually produced by the U.S. Navy, I believe, uh, as, a, as an untraceable way to send information from one place to another. And it's called the Onion Router because each hop along the way encrypts a certain layer of information and wraps it um, itself around another layer, which is encrypted and wrapped around. So nobody knows what's underneath it, but each step of the way, they peel away a layer of the onion. And so the onion router has been, uh, it's rock solid. Nobody's been come even close to breaking it. And uh, it's been a great way uh, to send secured information. Well, it, it, it really took them longer than I thought they would. But uh, the bad guys have figured out that they can write viruses and botnets that encrypt their data through the onion network of routers, and nobody can find out where they are. So one of the, the things right now, if you write a botnet, you have to give it orders somewhere. And the common ways of doing that now are uh, by putting stuff on websites or IRC chat rooms, where it's very common for a long time. They'd have all the bots log into a chat room and wait for the commands. Well, somebody could get the virus, see where they were going, and they'd go to the government and say, shut down all of these domains, and they would kill the virus. Well, the bad guys have decided, we'll just use Tor, and they won't know where we're going. Clever and scary, all at the same time. Yep. Right. It's very yeah. interesting. It's a very interesting way of using an existing security tool to do illegal stuff. Um Somebody had their thinking cap on to do this. That's for sure. And I guess from what this article is saying, that they they found um, the Zeus and Skynet uh, botnet using Tor. So that's that's really scary because wasn't Zeus the uh, that banking trojan? Um, yeah, I think it was the one that was being used by uh, that was attacking the bank. So I don't know that yeah, that's yeah. the banking trojan, but. Yes. Yeah, and there's a. Uh, um, I think it was on Security Now, the uh, one of my favorite podcasts, where they were talking about this, and they said one of these um, malware, virus, whatever. They're not really viruses anymore. They're all worms. Um, one of the things it did was use part of your GPU to mine bitcoins, and yep. then it would send all the data back to a central place. So if you were infected by this malware your uh, graphics processor would be used to mine bitcoins that somebody else could make money off of. Yeah. For, for those that don't know what Bitcoin is, Bitcoin is like a digital currency. Yeah, it's a um, purely online currency that exists. That, basically, the way you mine, quote, a Bitcoin is to solve a mathematical problem. There's this this series of, of mathematical problems built into the system and the first one to solve it gets x number of bitcoin allotted to them yep and it's it's a real thing you can actually trans uh, uh transfer real currency u.s currency to bitcoin and back and the last time i checked it was like three dollars a bitcoin something like that it was a huge change of of you know money in order to get 
a Bitcoin or a handful of Bitcoins. Yeah, it's really um, fascinating for, the way it's set up. Every time somebody solves a problem, the entire algorithm gets more complicated. So it's yep. less likely for somebody to solve the problem in the future. And it's built in such a way that the, you cannot inflate the currency. There's a maximum of, I'm going to make this number up, say 10 million Bitcoin is the most that can ever be produced. After that, the algorithm shuts down on itself and you can't make any more. So it's a non-inflationary currency. It can never be more. Wow. Yep. It's a really cool idea. Um, I turned on a, a couple of machines that I had it running. Just I, All I did was had it on Bitcoin, or, uh, running Bitcoin miners. And I had it running for about nine months, those two machines. And I never turned them off and just checked on them every day. Never once did I make a coin. So, yes, so I guess the, the way it works is when you solve a problem, you get 50 Bitcoin. And at the current, at when it was first released, the, uh, the algorithm was such that an average uh, processor for the day, a three gigahertz processor, would mine one Bitcoin every year on average. But yep. every time the Bitcoin, or one 50 coin Bitcoin batch every, every year. So every time somebody does that, though, the algorithm gets harder and it takes longer. Um, mm -hmm. And so people have actually created these big Bitcoin mining operations using uh, massive GPUs, uh, uh, clusters of them, hundreds of, of PlayStation 3s all lined up mining Bitcoins. Yep. Because, you know, assuming the system stays intact, their 50 Bitcoin now. Uh, will be worth thousands of U.S. dollars, you know, in the future because it can't inflate, and the U.S. dollar does. Yep. Hmm. It, it was disheartening for me, so I turned off my Bitcoin manufacturer, <laughs> my little, my two little P4. I think there were two gigahertz processors with no gig, with no uh, GPU acceleration. I just turned them off. I figured there's no sense in the matter anymore. But it was fun to think that someday I could wake up and my Bitcoin wallet would say 50 Bitcoins. And I thought that was kind of fun. But no, nah, I never won one at all. And you can, you can actually go buy Bitcoins if you don't want to mine them. You can go buy them. There's a Bitcoin exchange yep. uh, where you can go buy them. But anyway, um, back to the original point. Uh, this in industrial-grade encryption that is at with our current level of technology unbreakable is now being used by the bad guys – well, it, I guess it always was, uh, but now it's it's being used in a more novel way. So these viruses, uh, malware, these worms, whatever you want to call them, that that are now using the onion router, um, their endpoint and starting point are indecipherable. So you can never know where they came from. You can never know where they're getting their orders from, and uh, that's going to make them a lot harder to fight. Yep. But on the same note, it would still no. It wouldn't be any harder to fight because if you're using Tor, your packets are funny coming out. So if you, if you know, say, you know, um, your ISP was doing tr um, some sort of uh, deep packet sniffing, they could stop those Tor packets from going anywhere. Well, yeah, but then you've shut down Tor. And so that defeats the whole point of having the secure, untraceable thing. So you either have to, you know, accept the good with the bad or just totally kill the service. So either yep. way, the bad guys win. It might, it might be interesting for us to do a whole show on tour sometime. Uh, I won. Because... You lost. Get used to it, Gunny. Sorry, I watched the shooter shoot last night. Because <laughs> uh, one of the... Uh, um, 
I totally lost my train of thought. Uh, oh, one of the the real the, the interesting things about Bitcoin or, or Torrent rather is it's got to come out somewhere, and they call those exit nodes, right? So you're bouncing back and forth between routers that are all running the the Bitcoin. And you can set out Bitcoin. See, I've got that in my head. The Tor router. You can set up a Tor router in your home, and you can just be one of the nodes that people bounce back and forth through. And the overwhelming yep. majority of Tor routers are of that ilk. But a few brave souls will set up exit nodes, which says um, this is where traffic can get out, unencrypted onto the real internet. Um, and so you're sending traffic out on the internet that you literally don't know what it is or where it came from because it's been encrypted the whole way. Uh, and naturally, unsavory people have tended to use this technology um, because right. it hides what they're doing. So. Uh, there have been a number of stories, one just very recently about a man who the, the police, you know, broke down his door with, with, you know, a battering ram and, and was heavily armed because, uh, large amounts of ch- uh, kitty porn was going through his IP address. And he had three, uh, tour exit nodes in his basement. And now he's in jail. I mean, they frog marched him off to jail, you know, in his underwear in the middle of the night with his kids and wife watching on, I'm embellishing a little bit, uh, because that traffic was coming out of his his uh, his node, uh, his IP address. They've searched his his computer. They've searched his home. They they haven't found anything, but right. the the un- indisputable fact remains that his IP address was dealing in kitty porn, and now he's in jail trying to fight that charge. Yeah. So it's uh, it's brave people who do that, and maybe a little stupid. <laughs> I don't think I would ever be an exit node personally. That that just uh, no, I don't even want to even think about going there. Hmm. All right, so now we're an hour into the show, and we haven't even started talking about haiku. So you might be thinking, guys, you didn't leave any time to talk about this, or is this going to be a two-hour show? No, there's a reason for it, because we don't really have much to say about haiku. Uh, but first, uh, Chris wants to share his uh, the results of his a uh, little more than a month long experience using gnome 3. Uh yes, my little more than a month of I I'm going to say I'm going to preface this saying remember I am a KDE guy. I love my KDE and it was very painful for me to give up my KDE for a month, a little over a month. Um yeah, I'm still not sold on gnome 3. Um uh, not only because remember, I changed all of my machines, not just one. I did all of them. They were all GNOME 3 only. I removed my beloved KDE from these machines as well, so I couldn't even cheat. Um, you know, I, the, the range of different machines and the different graphics cards and everything else that I have, uh, it was just a painful experience for me. There, It, it did become easier towards the end of the month for me to get around but there are things that i just once you have the control that kde gives gave me for like for audio for example um you can't say that this application can only use this sound device and no it's all or nothing there's there's no way to to separate it out by program which sounds like a silly thing but if you're doing, say, Pandora streaming out of your PC, your PC speakers for the house, but
but you're using Skype through the headset, you can't do that in GNOME 3. It's either all in the headset or all in the, in the, the desktop speakers. Same thing with websites or videos or um, I was listening to – I had Pandora streaming for my wife while she was cooking some dinner because my kitchen's right outside my door. Um, so Pandora was streaming for her, but I was, lis- I was listening to um, a different video before. Mind you, this is all before when I was doing KDE. I could have – Pandora streaming for my wife, and I could still be listening to my podcasts or my movies through my headset and not having an issue at all. In GNOME 3, I can't do that. Um, as far as your basic functionality, web browsing, surfing the, your basic files and the file share, it all worked the same. You know that that part of it was you know more or less the same. Uh, you had to get the, there's a different paradigm in how to do multiple desktops. Um, it works, but it's kludgy, in my opinion. You can't dictate, I want this machine to open up on the fourth desktop every time it opens. Uh, if there is a way to do it, I couldn't find one. Um, but you, there is a way to do it in KDE that was point-and-click easy. Um, it just felt clunky the entire time I was using it. I was like, okay, yeah, this is pretty, it's nice, but why do I have to search for all my applications? You know, there was no clear, you know, internet browser done. It was, you had to search for Firefox or type in the words. And, you know, it, it just slowed me down when, you, when it comes to my daily workflow. And that, it, it's just, it's getting there. I just don't think it's there yet. Someday, maybe, but I'll go back to KDE and as of, to, well, as of Wednesday, all of the GNOME 3 will be gone, and I'll be on to my next one, which I don't know if I'm going to be able to live through the next one, but we'll see. <laughs> so you can't uh, say Chris didn't give it a fair try. He gave it uh, a f- more than a month of everything he did on all of his computers, and he still didn't like it. So uh, those of you uh, who have called him out on that in past, in the past, yeah, I won't mention your names, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you you called him out on this and said you're not giving it a fair try. I'm going to say he gave it a fair try, and he still doesn't like it. Was he open-minded? Maybe, maybe not, but he did give it a fair try. I tried to be open-minded. I honestly did. Um, and I looked at it as both as the experienced user and as the novice user. And, you know, as far as the novice user goes, you know, I, I pull on my mom's experience for that one. Um, I figured that was a pretty good experience novice user um and i sat her in front of both of them and she currently has a hate a love hate relationship with no with unity um and i figured unity and gnome 3 were close enough that i'm going to say that it works the same um and then i sat her down in front of my kde box you know uh, i think it was like two weeks ago and said okay this is kde and she was like oh this is so much easier for me to move to do things in so I don't know, but for me, I'm going back to KDE as soon as I get done with this next month of hell. <laughs> All right. And for those that want to know what the next month of hell is, it's cinnamon. Cinnamon. Which is cinnamon uh, is gnome two gnome three made to look like gnome two, pretty yeah. much. 
they tried to make gnome 3 backwards compatible with gnome 2 so we'll we'll see how that how successful they were with that if he hates it just as much as he liked gnome uh, 3 then they didn't succeed if he hates it a little less then they had succeeded <laughs> we'll find out check back next month <laughs> all right and so now seth tell us everything you know about haiku well um first of all it is just in alpha so you know this is not a finished product and it's probably not something that like if you're just an everyday computer user you would want to play with but and it's been in alpha since 2002 or something like that uh well yeah but for a while there there was really no development going on um uh, but just some minor tinkering, but they've like ramped up and they hire some short term coders for specific things. And they are looking to, uh, you know, next year, they, they even have like a rough timeline to get a beta candidate out. And they're hoping to, by the end of next year to actually have, uh, like a release candidate or even, you know, version 1.0. So with it being an alpha, you know, of course I'm, I'm prepared for, um, you know, hard to load and stuff like that. The first laptop I tried to install it on was a Dell Latitude 6500, so something that's about two or three years, well, three to four years old. And uh, I get the Haiku boot up, but I couldn't get the installer and I couldn't get the live CD to work. So I went to something a little bit older, a Dell 6 uh, Latitude D620, which is. Um, they're about six or seven years old. Um, the CD booted, it installed, it installed lightning fast. Um, and then, you know, when I restarted it and so it was running off the install, um, it was, it was, this machine will run XP, but there's a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know, like it kind of has to work, uh, haiku flew on this computer. One drawback is, um, when I turned on when I turned on my computer, I did not. Re I had the uh, the power brick plugged into the back of the computer, but I didn't have the power brick plugged into my uh, into the wall outlet. So after about thirty or forty five minutes of using this, all of a sudden my screen just died, and I thought, oh great, it crashed. But then I realized, oh wait, it hasn't been. It's been running on battery the whole time. So. I plugged the battery in. I turned it back on. There was no warning. You know, the computer won't ever work right because you turn it off with no power. Um, it just died. So it came back on. It ran the uh, web the web browser that was bundled. It was like it was like a modern looking browser. You could go to sites. The one drawback, I, I could never get Flash to work, so you know I couldn't watch YouTube videos. And, of course, some of the websites were a little bit squirrely because most websites that I go to either need like Flash or HTML5. So I'm hoping that by the time they get around to beta, it is, uh, you know, they've got those things integrated. Um, but it, it was stable. I didn't have any issues. It detected the network. You know, I plugged the... USB mouse in, I can move ports and stuff. It, it would work. It was really cool. It was it was really fast. It did not take up hardly any resources, but it was very limiting. So, uh, but it's one I want to keep track on. And I've been talking with a couple of people who are involved in development, and I'm hoping to maybe have uh, one of them on next week so they can kind of, you know, just tell us a little bit about what what the plans are and about Haiku in general. But overall. For an alpha, it's almost beta quality. I, I really I liked it. What there was of it, there just wasn't a lot there. 
I looked around some, and again, I'm, I'm not a coder type person, so I could not find like, you know, I was looking for some type of uh, app store like Ubuntu or something where I could go and install additional software, but I, I couldn't find any. Um, so there wasn't, there wasn't a lot to do, but it was, it, what it did, it did really well, if that makes sense. Uh, it'll be something I keep an eye on and whenever it's whenever they come out with a beta or a new alpha milestone i will give them i will give them another look because it'll work it works it seems to work better with the older the computer is and you know if you got an old old computer it's going to have trouble running os and even some of the modern linux distros are getting kind of resource intensive this thing is like bare bones uh but it it was more you know we talked we did dsl last week and you know it, it was functional but it wasn't quite pretty um i would say that haiku looks better than dsl does um and hopefully you know by the time it comes out it will be able to do at least what dsl does if not more so haiku i don't think you mentioned it is a reverse engineering of the bos uh and beos uh and the right. bos was big uh back in the days uh, the early 90s um yeah the history of bos is um i don't know i'll give people a real uh history lesson now apple when they first did the macs anything that came out had to be backwards compatible with the original mac and that was all the way up through 9.x was it i thought it was seven was it up through nine i i think it was everything okay. before the osx um, OS X. But anyway, some of the Apple engineers got fed up with that and they wanted to see what modern computers could do. And so they went off and started this company. And Apple was actually looking at this to be the foundation of their OS X, but there was, they could not agree on how much money, um, you know, to buy the company out for. And I think it was something like either 25 or $50 million. And they ended up going with the Steve Jobs company and bringing him in but he was that company what was it next star or next step whatever, next. next step yeah they were actually apple's second choice for osx uh and bos was the first but you know they and then they tried to uh you know make a go of it and they got on some embedded systems but they were you know they didn't have the marketing clout to uh you know to even as as little as apple did or you know to take on microsoft so, so uh, you might say that was a fortuitous uh, failed business venture for Apple because when they couldn't get BOS, they bought Next, and when they bought Next, they bought Steve Jobs, and right. that worked out pretty well for Apple. Right, yeah. right. They had run him out of the company, and then they brought him back when they were failing. So, yeah, uh, that just to say, to say that BOS is stuck in time back in the days when the Amiga was still a viable uh, computing platform. So right. uh, yeah. it's, it's got a lot of updating to be done if it's going to be modern, uh, but it was, it was way ahead of its contemporaries at the time, um, but is way behind today. So... It, I would not say it's way behind. Um, you know, some hardware drivers definitely, but as far as the a actual OS, it fits in. It's on par with several Linux distros, I would say. Um, 
Yeah, and graphically, it's sort of a throwback. Um, it doesn't have the fancy 3D rendering and everything and, and, the, and the pretty glass and transparency. So basically, it's Windows 8. Uh, graphically, <laughs> um, yeah, I was I was I'm of two minds for for BOS. Um, I think it's really cool what they're going through and what they're trying to do. Um, I just have a funny feeling it's going to just. I don't think it's going to fail. I, I honestly think it's it's not going to take root and and prosper because with how slow it is, or not not slow because it's fast. I was really impressed with it when it came to speed. Um, right, but as it's and it's pretty looking. I mean, the the it's appeasing to the eye looking at the screens and the and the icons and the the color palette. But I just have a funny feeling that unless they can get, you know, Firefox, you know, whatever version we're on, or Chrome, or you know, like you said, even Flash running on this thing, I don't think it's going to have any chance in the in the open market. It'll be one of those. Uh, hobbyist OSs, in my opinion. Yeah, that's one of the things... That's one of the things I want to ask them. Or go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just... Go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, it's a neat system. Um, I'm curious to see where they end up going with it, but I don't know if they're going to get very far with it. Yeah, I want to ask them if they're working on, like, you know, Firefox or Chrome or LibreOffice or some of the major software categories. And But, like, if you go to their website, their fundraising goal this year was $35,000. That was for fundraising 2012. Not December, but for 2012. And they've only received 15000 almost 16000 So, you know, if you think it, look at what they're doing. And, I mean, you talk about a shoestring budget. You know they're having to find used shoestrings. They can't even buy new shoestrings for their budget. Um, so it's for what they have to work with. I think it's really cool. Um, and I'm I hope they get out there and are able to develop and at least get to 1.0, so that way can see what it is and you know give it a fair shake again. You know because comparing an alpha release to somebody's final or you know a version release i mean that's really not fair so i i but like i say what's there is really good and it's really sturdy and it it didn't crash on me at all but um i I really i want to see i want to see haiku 1.0 i really do and the look of it is very mac os system 7 you know around that time uh pre-windows 95 era uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 it shows that legacy, but that's right. also part of what makes it perform so well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, because you know, they were, they were Mac engineers, so that's, that's what they knew and that's what they wanted it to look like. So. All right. So, uh, that was, that's all we have to say about Haiku because there's not a whole lot to say right now, but, uh, it will be interesting to see if we can get a developer on here and have a, a more uh, detailed discussion. Uh, but in the meantime, let's go ahead and move on to our tips of the week. And Chris has for you a brand new one he's never discussed before. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, this one is based on um, FFMPEG. Now, the last time I brought it up, this was for screen recording. Um, I was needing in need of doing a screen capture, but I didn't use... Um, FFmpeg to do the screen capture. I ended up using uh, GTK Record My Desktop, but it was, it, the final product was in a was in a 
video format that I knew 90% of the people I was going to send it to wouldn't be able to open. Uh, so I opened up FFmpeg with a couple of switches and fed it the my raw data, and it exported out something that I could send off to everybody. Um, it was a nice little tool. Uh, I just figured since I used it just recently, I'd bring it up again because FFmpeg is definitely the Swiss Army knife for video encoding or capturing. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've described it as that many times in the past. It's the the video audio multimedia rendering Swiss Army knife uh, or command line Godfathers. And uh, right. Seth has uh, for us a, a great way to find uh, used popcorn poppers this week, right? <laughs> no, I'm actually. Uh, this website is called Wapwolf, uh, W A P P W O L F, and what it does is it automates your Dropbox. So it's a Dropbox automator. For example, um, you know, of course, Dropbox is a great way to back up your data and sync it across computers. And uh, Mark, if somebody doesn't have Dropbox uh, and if they want it, can we like send them a code and can we increase ours or is that only like for personal ones or how? how uh, no, absolutely. You, uh, yeah, just uh, <laughs> we, we can uh, post a referral link. Any one of us can uh, and you get more space and we get more space. Yeah. So if you don't have Dropbox, uh, can, can you know. post that? Yeah. Can you uh, post a link in this show maybe in yeah, the show notes? I will do that. So that way you can click on that link and you will get more than the standard for free and we will get more. And so, you know, that's one way you can help the Element OP Nation grow and thrive. But for example, you know, say you wanted to upload a picture to Facebook, but you also wanted to save it in Dropbox or whatever. With this, you could do it both at the same time. Uh, you could convert things to PDF, convert to text, upload to Google Docs. So it's a way to use Dropbox to kind of centrally manage your online storage. And the link that I'm putting in the show notes is kind of the knowledge base on how to use WAPWolf Automator for Dropbox. So uh, I just thought it was really cool if, you know, of course, if you're somebody who doesn't trust the crowd, the cloud at all, then, you know, you will think I'm selling out to the man and you won't ever try this. But, you know, if, if you, you know, if you're on Facebook and Twitter and all that kind of stuff, you, you're probably at least fairly comfortable with the cloud. And this is just a way to kind of utilize some resources that you have out there, wapwolf.com. I'm a big fan of Dropbox. I pay for the 100 gig uh, version of it, uh, and currently I have about 40 gigs sitting out there, um, but I didn't, it was more than, I think I think it goes to, it may be 50 and then 100, and I didn't want to bump up against the 50, so I went ahead and went with the 100, but anyway, uh, well worth it. I think, if I remember correctly, it's a buck a gig a year, so... I'm paying $100 a year for 100 gigs of Dropbox, which is awesome everywhere except the syncing. Because sometimes I might put Dropbox on one of my smaller drives, and it's going to suck down 100 gigs of data on it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, not always. So what what we'll do is uh, I'll put in the show notes the the Dropbox referral links for all three of us. So guys, put that in your uh, in the the links in the show notes there, and you can pick which one of ever one of us you like the best, and use that referral <laughs> link if you want to start a Dropbox account. Cool. I'll, I'll have I've actually never tried to refer anyone to Dropbox, so I will have to look up my link. Uh, 
Um, and the last thing I have to say is uh, feedback. Thanks to uh, Scott and to Matt for the feedback this week. And if you like them, would like to be on the show, uh, if you want to hear your own voice on the show, then you can leave us a, a voicemail uh, either by calling 559-IAM-OPI or by going to our website and use the using the leave us a f- uh, voicemail widget at the top of the page. If you just want to send us an email that we will cursorily mention and um, deride, uh, you can do what uh, Scott did and, and send a very long email. And uh, and we will do that. If you keep it a bit more brief, as we have done in the past, we will probably read it on the air, yep. on the air, on the bits. Um, but anyway, we we encourage your feedback. I, I'm I'm just teasing you, Scott. We love you. Um, but uh, we we uh, just because you send us something doesn't necessarily mean we're going to read it on the air. But we do <laughs> we do read every one of them. So uh, we encourage your feedback. If you got show uh, topic discussions or questions, um, uh, let us know something you want us to talk about somebody you want us to talk to uh let yeah. us know or if you want to be on the show as a listener spotlight let us know that as well and uh if the uh two days after this show releases is in fact the end of the world it's been a pleasure serving you otherwise see you next week <laughs> <laughs>